It was the third pack of chocolate that night. Having come to the sad realization that the day's retail therapy had not borne the fruit she had hoped for, she sat down to enjoy the mysterious properties of blended cocoa mass and sugar. It wasn't anything that she could put a finger on from that day. She'd had a fairly normal week at work. Her boss had given her some encouraging words. She'd had a conversation with someone about Jesus on the metro. She'd been at church, sang a few songs and listened to the sermon. But all the while, there was a nagging sense of unworthiness. When she looked at the other Christians in church, she wished she could be like them. But what's done is done. There's no going back now. Oh, she knew it was wrong, but at the time, it felt so right. And he was such a nice guy. She really loved him and was sure they would get married one day. Oh, the regret she felt now. But somehow she just needed to muster up the strength and and keep going, right? She had to live a better life to make up for what she'd done so that hopefully one day God would forgive her. I mean, look at everything that God had done for her. The least she could do was live a good life now. Well, perhaps you can relate to this woman's story. You see, sometimes in our life, there's a tension between what we know and what we believe. What we know is truths that we can mentally assent to, we can agree with. But it's what we live out that actually shows what we believe. You know, we can come to church and and passionately sing songs of Jesus' grace and his forgiveness but then struggle through the week in our own strength, complaining, arguing, filled with self-pity. It's as if we simply forgot the good news of Jesus. Well, the psalmist knew this struggle. That's why he, like us, needed to be reminded constantly of God's salvation. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 103, So if you've brought your Bibles, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 103. The Psalms are a collection of Hebrew poetry. They're inspired by God for the Israelites, for their worship of him. The Psalms are infused with solid truth and ooze emotion. You know, whenever we read the Psalms, We need to make sure that we don't merely read them for information about God, nor be so emotional in our response that we fail to grasp the deep truths that stir the psalmist's heart to praise him. Well, this particular psalm is written by King David, a Jew, and as such a member of the covenant people of God. So like many of the psalmists, David has employed a Hebrew form of poetry known as parallelism, where two statements are placed alongside each other and inform each other of their meaning. So, for example, in this psalm, we'll read, He knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So there's a parallel between knows and remembers, and between formed and dust. So it's an appreciation for this 
form of poetry that is just helpful in trying to understand the Psalms. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Did you notice who this psalm is directed to? If we miss it, we could miss the whole point of the psalm. David is writing this psalm to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. It's there twice in the beginning and serves as the climactic close. You do talk to yourself, don't you? I mean, for some of us, it's uh, it's out loud. Uh, That can get confusing for those around us. But mostly, we tend to talk to ourselves internally, reviewing, processing, thinking, grumbling. Or is it that we're listening to ourselves? You know, there's a difference. Listening to yourself might sound like this. Oh man, I'm tired today. I wish I didn't have to get up so early. I wish I could have one of those those cushy jobs that everyone else seems to have. You know, the ones that start at 10 a.m. I guess I'm just not good enough for that. Where's my shirt? Oh, no. The wife didn't iron my shirt. Grumble, grumble. 
coffee will make me feel better. <coughs> well, talking to yourself might sound like this. Oh man, I'm tired today. But you know what? That's no different from yesterday. And it probably won't be different tomorrow either. I mean, you've got four kids, you know. You don't expect to get decent sleep for another five years. So get over it. You know, there's better things to think about than my own tiredness. I have a beautiful wife to love, people to serve. And wow, look at the way the morning light catches the the edge of the clouds. Nice one, God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book Spiritual Depression, says that one of the main reasons we struggle with joy is because we listen to ourselves rather than speak to ourselves. Well, what is it that the psalmist is telling himself? Look there in verse 2. Forget not all his benefits. He's reminding himself of what God has done and of all the rich rewards that he has received in God. Well, what are those benefits? Look at verse 3. Forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. It's the recalling of God's work and his character that motivates the psalmist to praise God. So if you're taking notes this morning, that's the two points of the sermon. Recall God's work and recall God's character. Do you see that even though this psalm of David, though directed at himself, is in no way centred on himself, God forgives, God heals, he redeems, he satisfies, he works righteousness and justice. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He has removed our sins from us. Well, the psalmist won't let up. Line after line, he recounts aspects of God's salvation as a means to stir up his heart to praise the Lord. Now, some of you are probably looking at at this line here. He heals all our diseases. And your rational brain is kicking in and saying, well, uh, it can't possibly mean that forgiveness of sins and healing of disease is the same thing. We all struggle with sickness, so we, and we won't fully know freedom from disease until we are in heaven. And I would say to you, you're right. In the same way that we will only be totally free from the effects and remaining presence of sin when we're in heaven, we will only be totally healed physically when we are in heaven. Well, does that mean healing doesn't happen today? Well, this verse certainly suggests that healing from the physical effects of the fall, those disease, is a part of God's overall salvation and may or may not be seen this side of eternity. But let's back up a bit. What is this salvation that David is speaking of? I mean, David lived a thousand years before Christ. He couldn't possibly have known the salvation we speak of today. Well, the key for us is found in verse 7 and 8. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger 
abounding in love. Well, David here is quoting the words that God spoke to Moses on the mountaintop as recorded in Exodus 34. You see, salvation for the Jews was God's rescue of them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan. God had worked miracle after miracle, displaying his power to the Egyptians through plagues and hail. He parted the Red Sea and brought the Israelites safely across the waters, drowning the Egyptians in a fury of rushing water. He redeemed them to himself and then revealed his ways to them through Moses. But let's not miss the context of Exodus 34. It was hot on the heels of Israel's infamous idolatry with the golden calf. Get this. God redeems the Israelites from Egypt with a mighty display of power and then says to them, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They agreed to it. Sounds fair. And then what do they do? They turn around and start worshipping a man-made statue which has no power at all. It's as if they simply forgot what God had just done. How much more poignant then are these words from Exodus 34? Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Oh, how compassionate God is to us. How gracious. You see, if we were there in place of the Israelites, we would have done exactly the same thing. We need to be constantly reminded of God's salvation because we are constantly forgetting Well, specifically, this salvation that David spoke about involves the forgiveness of sins. But what does that forgiveness look like? Well, David expands on it in verse 9. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Wow! That's incredible! Have you considered the reality of this statement? He does not treat us as our sins deserve. But hold on. Just back there in Exodus 34, God was telling us how he does not leave the guilty unpunished. How can God, a holy and righteous God, pass over the sins of man? When David was writing this psalm, The Israelites were steeped in the sacrificial system where sheep and goats, birds, cows, grain and and drink, they were all offered as a sacrifice for the sin of the nation. 
But we know from Hebrews 10 verse 4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins and that a better sacrifice was required. So the forgiveness that David spoke about in these verses had to come through a better sacrifice. Someone had to be treated as our sins deserve. If not, then God would be a liar and his justice couldn't be upheld. Well, how could that be? Paul gives us the answer in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sin committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so, that, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, the whole Old Testament and specifically the sacrificial system that the Lord had put in place points forward to Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, Jesus, the very Son of God. So how was Jesus treated? He was treated as our sins deserved. Jesus was a man of sorrows, a man familiar with suffering, both physical and psychological, suffering that culminated in his death on the cross, where he endured suffering during his 40-day temptation by Satan in the desert. He suffered in the face of strong opposition from the Jewish leaders, and he experienced deep grief at the death of his close friend Lazarus. But this suffering was only a foretaste of what was to come. As he drew nearer the cross, he told his disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Christ went willingly to the cross, where they nailed his hands and feet to the wood, severing nerves and muscles. With the cross raised up, most of his body weight was supported by his arms, bringing the chest cavity up and out and making it extremely difficult to breathe. And when the longing for oxygen became unbearable, he pushed himself up on his feet, pressing against the nails that pierced his feet, causing excruciating pain. But more painful than the self-inflicted suffocation that he experienced on the cross was the psychological pain of bearing the guilt of sin. Perhaps as a Christian you, know, you might know something of the weight of sin on your heart and how it burdens you. It weighs heavy on the heart and, and there is a bitter sense of separation from God. But unlike us, Jesus was perfectly holy. He hated sin with his whole being. In fact, sin contradicted everything that was in his character. Yet because of his love for us, Jesus willingly took upon himself all of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that God made him who had no sin 
to be sin for us. You see, it was God the Father who put our sins on Christ. In the same way that Adam's sin is put on us or imputed to us, God imputed our sin onto Christ. It's not that Christ was sinful or that he took on a sinful nature, but rather that God thought of our sins as belonging to Christ. But his suffering did not stop there. Because God is so perfect and holy, he cannot bear to be in the presence of sin. Just before his death, Jesus cried out, My Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? So as Jesus bore the guilt of sins on the cross, he was abandoned by his heavenly Father, alone, bearing the guilt of sin for millions, separated from the sweetest fellowship ever known. Christ then bore the full weight of God the Father's wrath against sin. Christ became the object of God's hatred of sin and his vengeance against sin that God had been storing up since the beginning of the world. Do you see the magnitude of our sin, of your sin, in what it took for someone else to be treated as we deserved? Do you see that you are a sinner? Oh friend, if you, if you have never thought of yourself as a sinner, if you have never even considered that you needed salvation, look to what Christ endured as one who got treated as our sins deserved. A oh friend, turn to Christ. Repent. Put your faith in him. Do it today. Place your trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. When my brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's work of salvation for you. Remember it. Dwell upon it. Don't take it for granted. Speak it to yourself daily. Don't listen to your self-pity, but speak the gospel into your life so that you might not forget it. But what about that one sin? You know, the one you did back in your wayward years, like the women in the story at the beginning. You know, the one that you think is too big for God to forgive. There is no sin that is too big for God to forgive. Christ shed blood on the cross is sufficient to cover all of our sin. When we repent and place our trust in the finished work of Christ, it's finished. He does not remember those sins anymore. It's gone, forgotten. It's not held against us. He does not see it. He has removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. All that God remembers is Christ's righteousness that has been given to you. Well, how do we apply this truth in our lives? How can we know if we are fully trusting in the finished work of Jesus? 
Well, ask yourself these questions. Are you struggling with joy? Is all this talk of joy in the book of Philippians foreign to you? Do you have a tendency to rationalise your sin? Or is there a nagging sense of unworthiness in your life? Are you throwing yourself into lots of good works? Well, pray. Pray that God would reveal your sin to you in a way that causes you to be undone before him, to be broken, to see that there is nothing you could possibly do to make up for your sin. Then know and believe that God will not despise a broken and contrite heart. In Christ, he will forgive you. Now here's where we get into the real meat of it, if we haven't already. If God has separated me from my sin, as far as the east is from the west, why do I keep on sinning? When the passage that Krishan read for us earlier, Paul explains how as we were joined with Christ's death through baptism, we are also raised to new life with him. Well, this is not literally, but through faith is the spiritual reality of what has taken place. Therefore, because Christ has risen, sin no longer has power over us in the way that it did before we put our faith in Christ. We now have the ability to choose not to sin. So how do we deal with sin that's present seems to plague us? How do we genuinely stop complaining or grumbling or gossiping? How do we see victory over addiction to pornography or fits of anger? Well, Chris Lungard has has written a very helpful book called The Enemy Within, that addresses this very question in much more detail than we have time for today. Now, I'd love uh, to tell you that there's copies out in the bookshop, but there's not. (laughs) But if you desire to grow in holiness, if you desire to live out the reality of the resurrection in your life, this book has been very helpful for me in understanding the power of sin and understanding how Christ's power over it can, can be worked out in reality in our lives. It's a very practical book, very helpful. Uh, I believe you could possibly talk to uh, Sam at the bookshop and place an order for it. But here's a few points to help you in the process. First, you must genuinely want to be free from sin. You know, all too often, we get comfortable with our sin. See, if you aren't truly interested in change, then don't mess around. This is real power. And God really does hate sin. We need to take God's side against our own sin. We need to despise it in the way that he despises sin. And then we must approach the Lord through faith in in Jesus' death 
and resurrection and ask that he would help you to have victory over sin. You see, Jesus is the only one who can destroy the sinful nature because salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Ask that he will give you more faith so that there will be no difference between what you know and what you believe. Pray that God would empower you to live out the reality of the resurrection. But no, we can't do this on our own. We need help. So approach a mature brother in Christ, if you're a man, or a sister in Christ, if you're a woman. Confess your sin to them and ask them to help keep you accountable. Sin is no laughing matter. And its power is very great. But brothers and sisters, the power of the resurrection is even greater. We can have victory over sin and it is ours in Christ Jesus. Well, that is God's work. Let's now look at God's character. You know, being a father has taught me a lot about myself. God has blessed Donnie and I with a full quiver. (laughs) We, We have four kids and all of them are a real joy and a blessing. Now Sam, who turned three yesterday, is a real boy's boy. He has two volumes, loud and asleep. When he wakes up at 6.30 in the morning, he joyfully blesses our family with a loud, Morning time! Morning time! As he runs around his room and jumps into Liam's cot and wakes him up. (laughs) I've I've yet to teach him the proverb that says, If a man loudly blesses his neighbor in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Anyway, the Lord in his infinite wisdom has decided that we should be his parents. And, uh, <laughs> and, and as such, uh, to help him to understand what's wise and what's not. Well, as you can imagine, there are numerous times where one of the others has been hit by Sam. And so I, I bring Sam over and I squat down. He knows the drill all too well. <laughs> Sam, Sam, look at Daddy. Sam, you are not allowed to hit Kalia. Yes, Daddy. Say sorry to Kalia. Sorry, Kalia. And off he goes. And almost immediately, he turns around and hits her again. <laughs> Sam! But I love him nonetheless because he is mine. He's my boy. Well, that's the kind of love the Father has for us. Those who fear him are called his children. Do you see that in verse 13? As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Why? Verse 14. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. In the same way that David has contrasted the heights of the heavens above the earth and the east from the west, now, He's drawing a contrast between God and us. God's compassion and love is displayed powerfully in our lives as he time and again deals with us patiently, 
despite our frailty and our struggle with sin. We saw that earlier in Exodus 34 when the Lord, he didn't wipe the Israelites out as a result of their idolatry, but rather he revealed his character to them as compassionate. It's like David was recalling those events when when he contrasted the weak and mortal man in verse 15 and 16 with God's everlasting love in verse 17. So, but no, this is not an excuse. David is, is not saying in a poetic form, I'm only human after all. I can't be expected to be perfect. God is. See what my forefathers did? I mean, at least I haven't worshipped a golden calf. No, the contrast is in place to highlight God's character. God is compassionate and his love is everlasting. That is... That is the hope and the assurance that David has that God will complete the work he began. We are but a moment in time. But God is infinite. As his children, we struggle with the remaining presence of sin. But God is compassionate. We can't make it on our own. We can't finish the race in full obedience But God's love is unfailing. His son was faithful and he will finish the work for us. Did you notice God's faithfulness in verse 18? Those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. Well, is this to mean that God's love is conditional upon our obedience? Well, if that's true, it it doesn't seem consistent with the fatherly compassion we just saw in verse 13. No, Israel's history, and, and even a quick look at our own lives, reveals that it is impossible for us to keep his covenant in our own strength, in as much as it is to obey him in our own strength. The only person who ever kept the covenant completely, who fully obeyed God the Father, the one who completely loved the Lord with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind, all his strength and his neighbour as himself, was Jesus. Through faith in Christ, his perfect track record of obedience is credited to your account. And then, to seal it all, David recalls God's sovereign rule over all in verse 19. See, it's because God is sovereign that what God has done can never be undone. If his work is complete, it is finished. Well, God's character of compassion, his love, his faithfulness in fulfilling the covenant, his sovereign rule over all, are the characteristics of God that the psalmist recalls to give him hope and assurance in his struggle with sin and what he recalls to stir his heart to praise him. So as we struggle with the remaining presence of sin in our lives, recall God's character to yourself. Remind yourself of his compassion when you fail. Remind yourself that his love is unfailing. 
Place your hope not in yourself or on your own ability to obey, but rather on Jesus' perfect obedience and his unfailing love that will keep you to the end. So we've seen that God's work and God's compassion are the things that we need to remind ourselves of. God's character. We need to remind ourselves that he has saved us and he has given us his righteousness and we no longer are slaves to sin but we can live in victory over it. What is the appropriate response to David's deep meditation on God's work and his character? Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. O Father, we pray that we would not be forgetful. We pray that we would not take for granted the incredible work of salvation that you have won for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we we give you praise that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but rather that you have treated Christ as our sins deserve so that we might have his righteousness. Oh, Father, we pray that we would live out the reality of the resurrection, that this would not simply be things that we know, but, Lord, it would be things that we believe. It would be seen in our lives. Lord, we pray that, that you would reveal your compassion and your unfailing love for us throughout our lives. Lord, that time and time again, as we struggle with the remaining presence of sin, we would remember and that we would praise you because it is your work from beginning to end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.